I look very corporate-y today. Yeah, you do. Yep, this is this is DC Jordan. Uh, DC Jordan wears collars and uh, <laughs> fancy shirts from, uh, I don't know where I got this from. Actually, you know what? I think this shirt, I bought this for my stepbrother's wedding at Kohl's. So, shout out to Kohl's. Shout what out to get, Kohl's. What if we get sponsored by Kohl's? We can get all the cargo shorts that uh -huh. I would ever need. Like There you, know, you go. Yeah. So today's guest is Tim Minchin. He's a comedian, he's an actor, playwright, multi-talented guy from Australia. You've seen him on multiple shows. Well, first of all, his latest project, his latest TV show is, uh, was an Australian TV show called Upright, which is streaming on Sundance Now here in America. And uh, he also appeared on several episodes of Californication on Showtime. And he was in the Robin Hood reboot movie a couple of years ago as Friar Tuck. And uh, he has multiple uh, stand-up and musical specials that you can watch. And this is our holiday special, Demi. We forgot, I forgot to mention that. This is our holiday special. Happy holidays. And you lost, you lost <laughs> your Santa hat at some point you were gonna wear. Oh my goodness, that Santa hat was from a long time ago, from a different world, you know? Jordan, Jordan knows about that Santa hat, oh shit. Um, so hello, um, here's the thing. I'm, I'm excited to have a comedian on the show because I have a feeling that he is not going to let Jordan and I crack our usual jokes and he may even roast us. So we're going to find out. Um, he's a nice guy though. I don't think he's, a, he's not like, uh, it's not like Don Rickles is coming on, like the I'm ghost of Don Rickles. I'm in the mood to be roasted is... today. Huh? I'm in the mood to be roasted today. I saw this meme yesterday. It was like, when you're low key trying to flirt and then you realize you roasted him. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, like when you're a little kid <laughs> and your idea of flirting when you're like, 10 years old is to like, you know, make fun of a girl, make fun of a boy, you yeah. know, tease them because you don't have any idea how to flirt. <laughs> yeah, like that. I think I've, I've, uh, you know, that's me. That's for you. Sure. For sure. That's you. What, um, do you prefer the, the obvious flirt or the subtle flirt when it comes to guys? Oh my goodness. Um, I like them both because when you're being obvious about flirting, it's kind of like you're confident, right? Like, yeah, that's hot. Yeah. What about you, Jordan? Tell us about your love life. <laughs> <laughs> Tell everyone. Oh boy. I've kept this private. You know, I'm a, I'm a private person. You know yeah. what? Here's the thing. Is I say I'm a private person? I know though. It's, Shh, it's I probably know. just cause I'm single. Like if I wasn't single, I would be like, yeah, I got this hot ass girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck that. <laughs> we, just, we just went to the Adirondacks for the weekend. No, I'm just kidding. Mm -mm, um, don't. It's not yeah. all that. It's not all that. Trust me. So our, this is our holiday episode. And yes. we will be back after New Year's with one of Demi's favorites, Peter, Bjorn, and John. I, I'm already thinking of ways how I'm going to like present this to the world because i'm so excited i've listened to them for so long especially young folks like i when you called me earlier to confirm that we're having them on the show i literally for an hour listened to young folks on replay just like reliving my old high school dreams so i'm gonna piss in my pants Jordan. you're gonna have to take the the lead on this one i really <laughs> hope you don't but but I can't. I've said that before for like 10 other artists, but I, I really do sometimes, yeah. you know, I just get so excited. Well, I'm excited that you're excited and I'm also excited. <laughs> and they're also excited. Since it's our holiday special, Demi, 
Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm going to say sort of holiday special. Maybe I'll even make a little graphic that says sort of holiday special. Yes. Um, what, what did you grow up really celebrating Christmas, you know, intensely or was it more casual or? Yeah. I mean, we celebrate. I come from a huge Puerto Rican and Dominican family. So that mixture, if you're freaking from New York, you know, that's a party. You know, that's a party. So yeah. What, um, kind of, what kind of food are we talking about? So let me forget food. Let me tell you how lit we get. We get so lit. I've seen my uncles and aunts do the weirdest shit growing up. I can't even re- like, I couldn't even probably say that here because it's too explicit. Um, but yeah, we party hard when the family gets together. Um, it, it, it looks like a freaking, uh, Kanye West video or some shit. Not going to lie. There's, wow. there's strippers, you know, all that. <laughs> wow for for i i'm kidding i uh yeah i i really <laughs> feel like my midwestern white boy christmas really could use a boost after hearing that <laughs> i want to give a shout out to demi's mom demi's mom is one of the steadfast supporters of <laughs> demi always commenting always supportive always got the firecracker and fire emojis going you know Yo, you know, what's so crazy is that let's talk, yo, what's up with like parents on social media? I want to talk about that. Your you're, mom's, you're the, first of all, she's your, mom, lit. your mom's younger than my parents, obviously. Okay. Yeah. So my and parents rides are motorcycles. Okay. So yeah. Your parents are not that old. So they're a little bit closer to the social media generation. And I think that has something to do with your mom's uh, enthusiasm. You know what's funny though? I I wonder what is like, right. Think, like, what I is your with mom the was just, I thought your mom for a while. I thought she was just like a fan or just like oh some like you know. Oh, that's so. Because here's the deal: we're not like we're not caller daddy. We're not. We're Joe gonna Rogan. be caller daddy. We don't have the <laughs> we don't have the audience that some podcasts do, but we do have like this small like we have a niche of this little army of 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 listeners. So I thought it was one of one of those my request inbox is getting increasingly large of people like literally just being like hey check out my music and i was like whoa like i don't know how to handle that but it's pretty it's pretty cool i think that we're choosing artists that that people actually are not just listening to but want to know more about um and i i I don't know i don't know any other podcast doing that so it's freaking lit so Hello. for the listeners out there, for the viewers, we are- I think Tim from- is here. Oh, he is. Yes. Tim. Hi. Hello. Tim, how are you? Just to soap my sound. Hold on. All right. What? I think he's the first guest oh. that has like official equipment. Oh, yeah, Tim's got the, got, the, got the mic arm and uh, we really appreciate the professionalism of your audio setup. <laughs> well, not yet. Well, now- now, uh, now, do you appreciate? Whoa! Whoa! What did you yeah. do? I just, I don't know. I'm like, I'm magic. <laughs> you are magic. I'm an actual magic person. I was watching your interview on Corden, your recent interview on James Corden, and you did your own sting for. Yeah. Well, I I generally have a piano nearby. It's like. You, you never get over. I, I've never really got over that phase in my life where I'm a teenager trying to impress girls at parties and it's just like, oh, yeah, no, there's a piano. Oh, my 
goodness. Oh, yeah, no, nah, just, yeah, I'll play. You better watch out. Demi's going to ask you out here in a second. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. the piano. Like, I can't. Putting me I on can't, the spot. I can't, I can't go out. He said, you. I can't. <laughs> Because of a because of a pandemic and distance, <laughs> but you do yeah. write songs about distance. There is a song that you have. I think well, you do. Aha! I, I write a lot of songs about being away from people because it's what kidding. I spent my life doing. You have your uh, this new album out. You know, it's it's called Apart Together. But you mentioned in in, a, in another interview that it was complete coincidence. This is not a quarantine themed album. This was just the way it no. worked. Out. Yeah, it's sort of. Um, sometimes I think maybe maybe I seeded the pandemic just to support album sales because my my record has uh, has um, so, so weirdly fit into this year that it's almost like I created COVID as an advertising stunt. Oh my god! Yeah, if you're looking, should, we should we should have a look into that. Is all I'm saying. So the the actual lab that created coronavirus COVID nineteen was actually in Australia, not China. Well, it's in China, but I own it. <laughs> oh, okay, of course you do. Um, yeah, no. So the, it was called apart. The, apart together is one of the tracks on the album, and it actually comes from a the chorus being about how the song's sort of about love and falling apart and how, how when you commit to someone for life, really what you're committing to is watching them decay and then die. And I, I, and, um, I thought that was quite a romantic idea. And so I tried to write a beautiful song about, about the fact that, you know, humans decay. And so the chorus goes, I think this could last forever. Girl, let's fall apart together, which is very sweet. And then Apart Together became the title of the song and then that became the title of the album. And then some months later, it became a hashtag related to this chaos plague. And, um, but actually the album as a whole has had a different light shone on it by this year because there is a lot of uh, material about um, being away from loved ones and what home means and the passage of time. And it's quite a reflective record with lots of stupid lyrics. Um, so yeah, it sort of fits the year a bit. Do you feel like when it comes to love that you're a cynic or do you believe in that movie romantic kind of love that it can exist? Well, you've just uh, um, generated for the audience a perfect false dichotomy um, mm. because I think that's how people think. Either you're a, a roses strewn on the bed covers romantic or you're cynical. And I try very hard and have sort of built a career occupying the space in between, which is I'm addicted to or compelled to look at life in all its horror. I, I'm completely unseduced by um, uh, magical narratives of soulmates and, you know, I, you know the, world, the world's a chaotic place. Um, but I think the whole goal of art, from my point of view, is to find the beauty in that, not to find not to find, not to talk about love as some esoteric, you know, fairy tale, but to go, oh no, love's tough. And, and in my album, there's songs about fidelity and, uh, um, you know, all through my comedy, comedy career, I've been doing the same thing, which is saying, oh no, there's, there's beauty in the brutality of it. You've just got to see it. You don't have to either be wine and roses or there's no such thing as love. Wow. Tim, tell us about your first love. Oh, I'm married to her. I mean, so the one, yeah. the one person that you really loved is the one is the person you married. You're not one of these serial, like falling in and out of love kind of people because of this rationalism. 
No, well, I, it just happens. I mean, partly, partly because life is chaos and sometimes you meet your, sometimes you meet the person you're going to stay with forever. If you're going to do that when you're 40 and sometimes when you're 30, I met, I met mine at 16 and a half or whatever. Um, but we broke up for a couple of years and went that, that old story, but Sarah, who I'm married to, who's asleep in there somewhere. Um, and is the mother of my children, uh, uh, she is my wife, um, was my first, you know, girlfriend, proper girlfriend. I lost my virginity to my wife is what I'm saying, guys. Oh, wow. Yeah. That is, that's beautiful. Sexy. That's sexy. 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 Yeah. Yeah. Now I got to tell you, Tim, this, this is, um, sort of our, our holiday show, so to speak. It's the last show that will go up before Christmas, which is considering you're famously not Christian, famously rational, (laughs) famously not a fan of organized religion. Um, but do you, how do you feel about the, the, the holiday season, the, the cheeriness of it, the warmth of it? Do you, do you enjoy any of it? Oh yeah. Well, actually, um, in Australia and to an extent in England, um, uh, my best known song is a Christmas song and it's, uh, and, it, um, it, you, you've set up a perfect segue. You can play it for your listeners. It will make you cry. Um, and again, it's exactly the same. My, my whole career is about finding the beauty without the escapist narratives right so i i'm not particularly not a fan of organized religion although uh i suppose i what i'm not a fan of is the bad bits um and the more religious you get the more bad bits there are because the more removed you are from reality right um the more in it you are the more likely it is you'll misbehave based on a false moral impetus right anyway so that's how i feel about religion but my Christmas song, which is called White Wine in the Sun, I wrote, uh, well, in fact, 14 years ago, virtually today, because my 14-year-old daughter, who is currently downstairs, passed out with her eight friends who she had because school finished yesterday, and she turned 14 a couple of weeks ago. So they had a big hair dyeing party. So our house is destroyed with hair dye. It's all the colours. Just all colours. They all bleach their hair, and they're, you know, they're the kind of they're the kind of queer quirky group at school. And so they all, they're, they're all just all over our couches. I mean, they're just 14 year old <laughs> girls are just so feral anyway. Um, but that means that cause I wrote white wine in the sun this week, 14 years ago, because when I had my first kid, Sarah and I had just moved to England and we had our first baby in a freezing English winter away from all our family and stuff. And I wrote a song really that starts being a song about, um, Christmas and how I don't really believe in religion, but it's, but the chorus says, I'll be seeing my dad, my brothers, my sisters, my gran and my mum. And it's a family song. And then you realize halfway through the song that it's actually about a compulsion I had, like a, like the strongest emotional pull I've ever had in my life to get this baby on a plane and bring her back to Australia and dunk her in the ocean, you know? So there's sacredness in all this stuff in that pull home, in that desire for family and the desire for ritual to baptize the kid in the Indian ocean. These are the compulsions that make us build religions, but you don't actually need religions to feel them. You don't need religion to transcend. You, there are different narratives built on a more materialist interpretation of the universe. 
Hey, I talk in big sentences. No, I, was, I saw when you on Russell Brand's show. Oh, yeah. Well, he speaks in big sentences. Tell I mean, me just... about that. You guys debated rationality and spirituality. Um, yeah. What are your thoughts on Russell Brand and his whole thing that he has going on? Well, um, and I don't think Russell would mind me saying this. I don't understand what he's got going on. <laughs> um, because I, I've known Russell for a little bit for um, 16 years or something. And I'm incredibly fond of his work and him as a person. But his um, linguistic or semantic habits, for me, that they don't, I, and it might be because I don't listen to his, I tend to listen to him when he's debating or I talk to him when he's debating and he gets a gallop on, right? And I, I feel like what Russell, Russell's habit is, and I haven't said this to his face, but I don't, I, I, you know, he could listen to this. So I'm, I'm not being, um, I'm being critical, but I don't think I'm being mean. I think, and I recognize this because it's in me and I try to temper it. He is motivated by making sure his audience know how bright he is and, and, and his language can obfuscate his intent, right? like I just did then by using the word obfuscate. I'm trying to show you I'm smart, but in doing so, I used a word that half your audience won't know. So I shouldn't <laughs> have used it, right? Russell does it all the time. He, he's, he's trying to get a point across, but he's actually getting in his own way because he's very smart, one, but needs to prove it all the time, too. And I totally get that. I recognise it because it's like a freaking mirror. But he's... When we were talking... I was writing down notes and, and I usually don't have to write down notes because this is my job, discussing ideas, trying to clarify esoteric concepts and trying to listen to them and reflect on them is my job. I'm, I'm okay at it. But I was writing down notes because I'm like, I have to get back to this because he's galloping straight through all these completely what seemed to me false premises about love and capitalism and stuff. And I'm like, he's not actually... It, it was, it's, it's difficult to talk to him because I want to know more about what he believes. But for me, it's just lost in waves of words, you know? When I, when I first saw that, that clip and when I first saw that you, you know, had, you had done the show, the first thing I thought about was these guys are going to agree on something. Um, Russell Brand, he's a big advocate of the separation of church and state. So at least yeah, yeah. You, you at least have that common ground, right? Oh, we've got so much common ground. I think that's where the conversation ended. I think we have almost 100% common ground, except that he has a narrative about it. No, we don't. I don't think that rationalism is the enemy of peace. I, I think that, that the flaws in his critical thinking are... Uh, and you know, uh, flaws in his critical thinking doesn't sound quite right, but um, the, I, I don't, I mean, obviously that you cannot argue a priori that, ca that capitalism and, and rationalism or not that they're together, but cap uh, rationalism, that scientific rationalism, that the scientific method and discarding your psychological and neurological biases and all the things that science says, you can't, a priori argue that that's the enemy of the forward movement of humankind and peace and love. It, it's just, it's, it's a non-starter as an argument. He takes it as, as the starting point, you know, uh, he, he just sort of asserts it. Uh, but 
I don't think I've spent enough time with him. So I am definitely misrepresenting him here, which is why it's important that people like us talk if you're interested in this conversation. Yeah, well, you can go check out the interview with, uh, with Tim and Russell on uh, YouTube and you can hear what we're talking about. I admire your career because you've done so many different things. I'm a, I grew up mm-hmm. a theater kid and your theater work is just your, your body work, you know, co-writing Matilda and Groundhog Day the Musical. And when I'm going through your bio, I, I saw that, you know, you did that Shakespeare, Shakespeare's birthday thing, the Shakespeare oh, yeah, life yeah. thing a few years ago. And you were sharing the stage, sharing this with all these legends. Um, you know, Ian McKellen, I think Helen Mirren was involved, correct? Uh, I think Harriet Walter and Judy Harriet. Dench and, and, Judy Dench. and okay. David Judy, Tennant. I, yeah, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't Helen Mirren, it was Judy Different Dench. dame. Yeah, different dame. Get, get your dames mixed up, I do what it What was that experience like? Oh, it's fantastic. I actually um, and write describe about what that. what we're talking about here. Okay, so yeah. for, for Shakespeare, the, for the anniversary, uh, 400th anniversary of Shakespeare's death, so... Uh, um, Will Will died in sixteen sixteen, and and the Royal Shakespeare Company in Stratford upon Avon had a big um, party to celebrate the four hundred years, and um and I they did lots of bits and you know out, um, snippets of great productions of the plays and stuff, but I the the artistic director approached me to help him put together a sketch to try and involve all these big names, and it was his idea that that uh, Papa, uh, Papa Essiedu, who was playing Hamlet at the time, should start doing to be or not to be. And I would walk on and kind of lecture him on how his phrasing was wrong. Yeah. And then David Tennant would walk on and tell me I was wrong. And, and then Benedict Cumberbatch would come on and then a couple of dames and a knight and eventually Prince Charles. And I, I mean, I was... An interesting thing about being a West Australian sort of self-taught you know, uh, hick from the boondocks is that I, I it just doesn't really worry me that stuff. I don't get to, I don't get particularly overwhelmed because I've just met enough people now. I mean, and, and, and Jordan, you'll, you'll, and probably you too. Demi, do I say Demi or Demi? It's, you know, people it's, just choose. Oh, one. sure, sure. Half it's, and Demi, half. It's, it's, it's Demi, Tim. You can call it. Okay, Demi. Demi. I had a teacher um, once like, that called me Demi, though, for like my whole life. Okay. Did you hate that teacher? Did you love the teacher or hate the teacher? Um, mixed feelings about her. Okay, great. Mm. great. <laughs> um, so, anyway, I mean, I, like, I, I've got to have, I'm quite. I would say I'm friends with Tom Stoppard and I've got to have drinks with Stephen Sondheim. And, you know, like the moment when I would get befuddled by famous people passed a little while ago and that's a huge privilege obviously but um it was quite interesting trying to wrangle those people especially because people like um benedict he he's such an incredible actor and he's so high profile like he turned up at at the theater with people screaming in a big black car you know in in a tiny town in stratford upon avon um and he and i've known him a little bit and he walks in and and he's just it's quite hard to say to someone like that, walk on stage, do this bit and, it, and trust me, you won't look like a fool because the higher up you go, the more you have to worry about how you're perceived. And so my, my main stress was trying to make all these incredibly 
powerful people feel comfortable that that the joke would be on me that I'd look like the idiot in the sketch and and that uh, anyway they, they it, it worked out really well and it, it was obviously a very thrown together we didn't rehearse it or anything we just sort of went so you'll do this and you'll do this and you'll come on from there like we sort of ran it once um and you know I look back on it now and think that could have been funnier but uh but I actually wrote about that night in my song on from the album which is called talk too much stayed too long I refer to um sharing cigarettes with knights and shooting tequila with dames because mm. I that night ended up I had a moment after the sketch was done and you know I'd sort of given Prince Charles a cuddle I, we were up in the change <laughs> rooms and Harriet Walter and uh, Judy was on stage doing a bit of Titania from. I like how you say Judy just very casually. Like Judy, oh, oh, Jude, Jude. Yeah, oh my Jude. God, she's so funny. She's so hot. Anyway, um, <laughs> she was she was on stage, and the sound of her speaking these words that I've loved all my life, um, you know, doing monologues from from Midsummer's were coming through the tannoy. And Ian McKellen, who I've known a little bit, was like, you know, sitting there having a cigarette and talking about some, you know, when Judy was young, she had the foul, oh God, she was naughty, you know. And then, and, and Benedict Cumberbatch was oh, like, oh, could I, could I have a puff of the cigarette? And Tennant was there. Tennant's, Tennant's um, a huge, um, incredibly supportive advocate of my work like he he's been watching coming to my gigs for years so he's there wanting to talk about my songs and and the moon rose over over the avon river behind the trees and i i'd had a whirlwind 10 years i guess by this point um much of which was in stratford where matilda opened which was the thing that really changed my life uh and i was just i just i don't often in my career or life have moments where I really land because I'm always thinking what's the next thing. And, you know, I, I don't, I haven't had many moments in my life where I'm like, I made it or I did it. You know, I don't have those feelings, but that moment sitting on the balcony of the Royal Shakespeare company theater, listening to Ian McKellen and Harriet Walter throw out jokes about some play they did in the seventies and with Cumberbatch and Tennant and I, I, and the moon coming up, I thought, Oh shit. Yeah. I mean, if I can't, take stock of this moment there's something deeply wrong with me it felt like a conglomeration <laughs> of your whole career just kind of coming together yeah a bit of comedy a bit of matilda a bit of shakespeare and you know a bunch of old queens i mean i'm i'm never happier than in that world you have also done a lot of tv you did a australian series uh last year called upright um which oh, yeah. people can check out that show was filmed out in the Australian wilderness. Mm -hmm. um, and it had to have been surreal to have all this open space, this desert, this whole huge landscape in front of you, but yet you have this huge TV crew like right next to you and you have trade yeah. craft services and yeah. all the thing and animal trainers, I'm sure, because there were lots of animals <laughs> involved. So what was that experience like having this dichotomy of wilderness and, you know, Australian television? Yeah, I, it's, it's weird actually how much you can have cameras around you and the makeup trailer there and, you know, your stomach rumbling and looking forward to the chicken that the caterers are doing, but still feel, I mean, I guess that's the game, isn't it? You 
you kind of just switch it all off and you are in the desert and the snake is a real snake. I mean, the snake was a real snake, but you know, the, the, the kind of joy of it, if you, if you enjoy acting is, is that you do switch off a part of your brain and turn another part on. So you are just like a kid in, in a closet pretending they're, you know, um, in Narnia. And, uh, so, and, and also, uh, the story is, is, is about a couple of people really having to overcome a lot of hurdles and a lot of emotional and physical hurdles, like every good road trip, you know, it's a metaphor and not a metaphor at the same time. And, and you do have a parallel set of challenges because filming out in the bush is tough. You know, it's not posh. It's not sexy accommodation and beautiful craft services. It's stripped back Australian budget. You know, I was working with Millie Alcock, who was 18, and we were on set 12 hours a day, and it was hot, and there were difficulties like on every shoot. So in a way, you're going through another parallel journey, which is how do we get these shots? How do we tell this story? So you're kind of, you're going through your own hell, you know, your own desert um, sort of uh, odyssey. Uh, in trying to do the filming. You just got to tap into that desperation and convert it to a story. Which do you prefer most? Do you, do you prefer theater? Do you prefer TV? Let me take it back, Tim. Let me take it back. Um, episodic TV is a whole other animal. There's the scheduling, you know, spending this time on set. Do you actually enjoy it? Because I feel like if you wanted to, you could have been a dedicated TV actor. And why did you choose to kind of keep your, your career path with many different forks instead of, you know, concentrating on one thing? I don't, I don't think I could have been a TV actor because um, I don't look right, you know. Like, I, I wanted to be an actor when I was young, but when you're in Australia, there's the sort of soaps and you're, you're either the hot surfy or the, you know, whatever. And... I tried to get an agent when I moved to Melbourne in 2002 and every agent in Australia said no to me because I wasn't trained. Because also in Australia, there's not a great deal of work and the agents get a million kids going, oh, I'm an actor. And they go, well, where did you train? And I, I didn't train. And that's like, oh, well, you look weird. So go somewhere else. And so I had every agent in Australia said no to me and every record company in Australia said no to me. And so, which is fine, you know, thank goodness they did because look at what I've got to do. Mm -hmm. And so I was playing piano for cabaret artists and stuff and then doing my own songs. And then really I became a cabaret artist and then that got called comedy. And that suddenly took me from 50 seats in a Melbourne club to the Royal Albert Hall in a single year wow. and in the and culminated in 2011 when I was playing with symphony orchestras at the uh, Wembley you know and um did I play at Wembley oh two um uh and off that profile I leave well, and then Matilda happened so suddenly I was not you know, there wasn't a lot of pressure. When you get a hit musical, it takes some financial pressure off you. So suddenly I'm like, oh, well, what do I want to do? And I, well, I still want to act. So I very slowly started going, well, I want to act. I want to exploit my new profile to act, but I don't want my own show. I want to go back to trying to get good. So I went back and did a, a stop art at the Sydney Theatre Company. I played Judas in Jesus Christ Superstar. I played a small role in Australian drama. I played a small, I did Californication and I got my chops up, right? So actually from 
when I first got back into acting to upright has been 10 years of me imposing on myself another apprenticeship. And so by this time I, I love it. I love it. But it took, I had to build my own path. I don't think if I hadn't have done, if I hadn't have done comedy and stuff, I wouldn't have succeeded as an actor. It required, I mean, it's, uh, uh, my career is part, a huge amount of luck, but also a testament to absolute stubbornness. Oscar, uh, go ahead, go ahead, Demi. No, I, I really admire, me and Jordan have had this conversation before, the fact that you are a man of many trades. You know what I mean? There's, there's almost no end to the amount of corners that you've hit in the entertainment world. How do you balance everything? How do you do that? I, I think, I think I, you know, p- p- people say, wow, you work hard. I don't, I don't, I think artists sometimes think they shouldn't have to work as hard as other people. Like if you're an artist and you can find something to do for eight hours a day, you'll get a lot done. It's just very hard to do eight hours a day when you're a creative it just doesn't your brain doesn't work like that usually i get like a couple of good hours done if i'm writing i basically the sooner i get to my computer if i can wake up at seven and get a coffee and start working i'll get all my best work done before 9 30 and then it's diminishing returns right but i'm so lucky because if i'm not writing i can practice and and just play my piano or i can I can get on the phone and have some meetings about developing something else. So the balance allows me to, I mean, the, the multiness of my career allows me to get more done because, because I've, I can fall into a hole with my writing and then fill that hole with something else. But, um, but the balance is hard. I mean, I, I, I'm pretty anxious, you know, like I, I, for a laid back person, I have a lot of, um, you know, it's not for everyone. I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say everyone would love my life. There's a lot, you know, and, and most importantly, I've got these kids and a partner and a big family. And, you know, some of my family go through their struggles and I'm the, the balance is actually more about getting that stuff, right. Being a good dad and being a good brother and son, that's the stuff that, and then the final piece is peace is the Russell brand stuff is when do I, reflect when do i get to sit and chill and spend time and stuff so yeah the ba- the balance is in carving out space where i'm not working actually you mentioned matilda and i, I talked about groundhog day earlier writing a musical based on a beloved source material be it groundhog day the movie matilda the book um where do you even start with that in terms of structuring the play, thinking like, I need to put a song here, I need to do this, I need to do that, and then the logistics of actually staging it, doing table reads, that sort of thing. Like, where do you even start? <laughs> well, happily, it doesn't start with me. There's people whose specialty it is to get it started, you know. So on both of, of those cases, they were already, the ball was already rolling and they brought yeah. you to do your thing. Yeah, well, well, Groundhog Day, obviously the text existed and Matthew Warchus, who, who was the architect and director of Matilda, rang me up and went, I want to go for Groundhog Day. I want to, I want to get in touch with Danny Rubin and try and get those rights. Are you in? And I went, yes. Um, but Matilda, was, was, there was already a script and Groundhog Day, there was already a script, and, which means you know what your story beats are. And then the main job that I think 
the, the, the main thing that allows me to work in musical theater is not my songwriting, but my, my capacity to make decisions about who sings what when, right? So your central question is how do you decide who, who sings what when? And that's a really fun, complex conversation, like what needs to get done? So, and and it, it's many, many factors, like what, what character do we want to hear from? That, that's the easy bit in this where it's like, where do you put a monologue in a play? Here's a character, she's something major has happened to her we probably want to hear from her. So, right, she's going to sing. But what was the last song? Well, the last song was a ballad from a soloist. So do we need a chorus here? What do we want it to do stylistically? How do we want the audience to feel emotionally? What do we want to say about the world at large? Because songs in musical theatre should also, you know, reflect not just on this story but on the macro story. What do we... Or, or, or to put it another way, how does this particular song feed into the larger themes of our piece? Well, well the, 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 the old, the old like uh, Rodgers and Hammerstein formula was they always made sure that there was at least one or two songs that could stand alone as, as songs that you could sing, that you could put on a record. So do you, yeah. think, do you think in those terms as well, if you're, if you're putting... No, your- so fam- famously, I don't care. Um, uh, and... Uh, and it probably limits the popularity of my musicals. Although I would say with Matilda, I mean, there's When I Grow Up, I suppose, and Naughty, that there are songs that can come away from the show. But Groundhog Day, I mean, Groundhog Day is so interwoven. Even if you listen to the album of Groundhog Day, it barely makes sense because we had to cut, because the songs came in and out of dialogue the whole time. And we had to sort of cut the dialogue to turn them into can you know discrete numbers but it's not actually how the musical worked and and when I've had critics say about my work well you don't come out humming a tune and I my response is I didn't want you to come out humming a tune it's just not interesting to me what I want is for the audience to feel how I want them to feel in the moment I just don't I'm not I'm not trying to sell singles and I'm not trying to, the only, it's so easy to get an audience to walk out humming a tune. You just repeat it lots. <laughs> it's just that simple. I was like, that was a great hook. It really stuck in my head. No, they just played it 12 times, 20 <laughs> times, 112 times. There are repeat, repeating themes through all of Groundhog Day and Matilda and stuff. But if, if the re- repetition of the theme for me clashes with the emotional intent of the moment, the theme goes. You don't let the emotional mo- the emotion of the moment suffer because you're trying to get the audience humming a tune. Now, maybe that means I'm not very good at my job, but actually it's, for me, it's just like a different style of musical theatre. I'm not, I'm not there to win Tonys. You know, like when we wrote Groundhog Day, the Broadway producers were like, you have to write a song that's good for the Tonys. And I'm like, what? No, I'm not writing a song for this play that you are worried is going to look good on the stage at an arbitrary award ceremony that someone made up so that it could make money. Like, like that's insane to me. Absolutely insane. I love the Tonys, but that, that's, that's the cart dragging the horse, isn't it? At what point did you wake up as a little boy and say, <laughs> Hey mom, dad, like I'm funny. I'm going to be an entertainer. You know, like what, what was that moment for you? I think, I think I first thought I could be, a professional artist 
when I was like 24 and I'd already written six scores for theater and done about a thousand gigs. Wow. So I you thought, didn't have that, oh, you know, there, there's that cliche about performers that, you know, I did plays for my neighborhood We all the neighborhood kids would come and, and the garage door would open and we would do blah, blah, blah. So yeah. that, that kind of situation. I got, I got a bit of that. I got, I got, you know, we did plays for my, you know, I'm one of four kids and we'd get to go with our cousins and we'd put on plays <laughs> and sing around the piano and my brother and I would play and we had bands since I was a kid, but I didn't have the self-belief and I, and I'm, and, and I'm very, not only did I not believe it, it, it's, it, there's something very American about a narrative that you're, I've spoken about this before, but it's not American, but it's very popular in America. Um, I don't know what its origin is, but that you at some point in your youth have a dream and the you American set about, dream. yeah, you set about to achieve it. And it's mm-hmm. often about something gross that that's like, I want my name in lights or I'm going to be rich. All this stuff that's just so, it's just terrible goals. Mm-hmm. Like if your goal as a kid is to have your name in lights, your parents are doing it wrong. See, your, goal, I would, I, your, your goal should be to be like kind and stuff. I, w- I, would, I would clap back at that a little bit, Tim, mm. in, in the respect that having your name in lights, having being rich and famous, it's it not so means, much, it's not so much the product of that. You're right. It's, it's the, it's the, the symbolism of that. Like if I have yeah, my yeah. name in lights, it means that I'm, I've created something that people want to see. That's right. That's right. That's right. But don't you think sometimes the name, the name in lights becomes the goal, not the, I, I, I hear people talk all the time. And I think, I think exactly what you just said there, Jordan, I think they're missing that bit. They're thinking about the rewards not the work that had to happen to get the rewards. And, and that's and probably why s- they don't actually achieve that because they're not thinking probably. about the work. That's probably. So I've said in my, there was this university speech I did that a lot of people watched. And I said, I, I believe in the passionate pursuit of short-term goals. Do put everything into the thing in front of you without an eye to where it's going to get you next. You know, that, that might not be good advice for all models or all people, but when I was writing music for youth theatre in Perth at the age of 21 for 500 bucks for 15 songs to put it on for two weeks and then never be heard again, I wasn't thinking maybe a scout will see this show. I was thinking, how do we make the audience cry? Right. And so, and, and because I come from Perth, because no one from Perth has ever written a Broadway musical. Mm-hmm. And why... Could they? I mean, I didn't know where New York, what side of the country New York was on until my twenties. I, I, you know, when, when you put a musical on Broadway and you get Tony nominated, they go, so how does it feel? You know, is this a dream come true? And I'm like, what's this place? Like, (laughs) you know, know, like, uh, no, it's not a dream come true. Like what kid from Perth ever went, I'm going to Broadway. I mean, the West end, the West end, I could just get my head around as something to aim for. Um, but yeah, it's, it's hard to explain how I had, I'm passionate about my work and I I have a big old ego and a chip on my shoulder. I'm talented. I should be allowed to work, but I never had, I deserve to be rich and famous or I, one day I'll be in America. Like I just never, I just didn't, I don't, America was just a place you go to get shot when I was growing up. (laughs) You know, it's not inaccurate. It's not not far off. Oh my god! 
Dimmy and I are in New York right now. Um, yeah. which is, oh, I'm so, sorry. So, <laughs> no, I mean, I love New York. I'm sorry you guys are locked down. I mean, it's a tough well, time. We're not, we're not, yeah. you know, just I'm because like you, just because you lead the world in coronavirus cases doesn't mean you have to be locked down, you know? <laughs> no, that's <laughs> it's freedom, freedom over everything, freedom in the, in the individual. Yeah. Wait, it drives me crazy. I understand that a tenant of America, of the United States, is freedom, individual freedom. I understand that. But this whole freedom as, a, as an excuse, as a mechanism to not wear a mask, yeah. personal liberties, over public safety, I yeah. think that's kind of a corner that America has painted itself into. I think that's a really good description. And there's something about America... Uh, oh man, I, I always feel like I have to say, I love being in the US and I spent four really fun, happy years in LA and so many of my best friends there. I end up being critical of it because I have this overwhelming sense that even my liberal friends in America don't quite understand how not the greatest country in the world you guys are. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> it, like, like, because deep down in the back of even my most liberal friends' heads, they're like, yeah, but... I mean, it's not going so well at the moment, but we're still the greatest country in the world, trademark limited, you know, like, it's like, no, 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 no. Like it's, it's, it's quite, there's some big, big problems that mm. it's that if you, and, and of course, a lot of my American friends have been overseas and are very, very bright. And of course they see this. So I'm sounding incredibly condescending. I apologize for that. But um, it's so religious, like the idea of freedom becomes almost a spiritual tenet. It, it, it's disconnected from the logic of freedom, right? So you guys in a way are less free. And I know you guys will agree with this because to say everyone can have a semi-automatic weapon because of freedom makes your society less free because you're all less safe and therefore less able to go about your business freely. So, so there's a complicated very nuanced discussion about what freedom means. You're obviously not free to murder or drive through red lights or not pay mm -hmm. your tax. There are limitations to your freedom that in a utilitarian sense, give everyone some total more freedom. And this is a discussion that the gun, you know, the NRA just can't have because they're too, they haven't read any books, but um, the, the, there's, there's, a, there's freedom in collectivism. There's more freedom in collectivism. As the world gets more and more populated, we're more and more going to have to, we don't have to be socialists or communists, but we have to go, wow, we are a planet full of people with limited resources. How do we make sure that we don't all hurt each other and we don't all stomp on each other, you know? And that's going to require a massive putting aside of the idea that individual freedoms are sacred. It's not all these, your constitution, they read it like a Bible. Your president, they treat him like a monarch. You know, it's so... This president weird. is special, though. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I, I would appreciate you not putting this current president in, <laughs> in a group with other presidents. Other presidents, yes. But, but he, he's highlighted <gasps> a problem, which is the president has monarchical powers. He's currently pardoning people. <laughs> Why does the president, as an individual... I know there are checks and balances, but... What is he, a god? It's more like an Egyptian king. Before I go, I'm going to pardon some people. Why is that a thing? That is insane. Mm -hmm. Turkey, one turkey. You can pardon one turkey, mm -hmm. and then, then you are beholden to the voters. You're not a freaking king. Or Here's, a the Here's the thing, though, Tim, is that 
you know, what you hear about Trump a, a lot is that he goes against the norms. That's kind of the narrative. He's, he's un it's unprecedented. He's going against norms. And the pardon power, yes, people have used it for, um, to pardon their friends who are in, mostly in trouble. But mostly it's historic. Like, for example, Trump did a good pardon, a good, a good pardon, we would call a good pardon, yeah. early in his presidency, where he pardoned the boxer uh, uh, Jack Johnson. Um, the early 20th century uh, black boxer, Jack Johnson. And that was, so a lot of these pardons, the, the spirit of the, of the law is more it's of like a- It's like pardoning, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's like a historical. Like pardoning a person who went to jail for being gay in yeah, the 30s. Yeah, sure, know. sure, sure. That is like, a, that would be a good an example yeah. of a proper- But Trump has showed, Trump has in many, many ways shown America and the world and all our democratic systems it seems we can no longer rely on good intent, good that, you know, that the whole of your democracy is it built kind of ruined on it for everyone. It it for everyone. everyone. You're a doc, your, your democracy, like so many structures, like families, like schools, they quietly just depend on the assumption that people are good and trying to educate themselves and trying to do good. That, that that's your democracy for all its checks and balances really only works if the person is not a narcissistic psychopath. And the fact that there is a system whereby a narcissistic sociopath can get into power and then like pardon people, unfortunately, your innocent halcyon Pollyanna-ish days are over. You're going to have to change your constitution so it never happens again. Now, are you going to change your constitution? Are you fuck? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I do want to clarify that I'm not anti-American. I like living here. I appreciate the freedom. I just oh god, I, yeah, of course, yeah, it's a fantastic yeah. country. It's yeah. just not as not. It's a bit broken. But there is. I'm not in this in this in this school of thought. But you know, I I me Demi and I live in this artsy music world. Uh, Demi mm. is being humble, but she is a trained opera singer who went to LaGuardia High School, the fame high school here in New York, very talented. Um, so we're all in this scene together and there's a lot of anti-capitalist, pro-communist sentiment here in New York. And, you know, uh, I'm, not, I'm not part of that school of thought, but it exists and I think it's important that we acknowledge we can't sweep opinions under the rug like they didn't happen. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, that's right. And I, and, and I, I mean, God, I'll, I, I'll get off this. I'll get off this podcast and worry that I'll get in trouble for something I said, because I'm obsessed by, I mean, the, the, the trouble is everyone conflates everything. So the, the comment that having a president that has more, monarchical powers than democratic powers is problematic when the president's a bad person is uncontentious that's an uncontentious thing to say no one could argue that it's good to give kingly powers to a bad person in america right there's a whole discussion about whether trump's a bad person which i think is completely uncontentious too and i'm happy to you know if you if you want to come at me for that then you just you just don't know what a bad person is but the other stuff, I'm not commenting on, on his policy, actually. I mean, I could, but I'm not going to, you know. And similarly, 
to to hate Trump, people make you know in Australia here, I'm I'm much better known, and I say things that are you know about climate change or about church and state, and everyone calls me a hippie, long-haired, lefty, dull bludger, and I'm like, oh no, you've got me completely wrong. I have never taken the doll. I'm a self-made, you know, capitalist. I pay huge amounts of tax and give money to charity. I married my first girlfriend. I'm monogamous. I have children who go to private schools. And, you know, like, I'm not, I'm your capitalist poster boy, man. I'm what you want. You, you the right claim that you want people to just pay reasonable tax and give a bit to charity and have good families, heterosexual families, you know. I'm like, you, you People conflate all these opinions. So anyway, I'm just ranting at 8.42 in the morning from Sydney. What an idiot. I want to lighten it real quick. Um, yeah. Kim, buy my album. Buy your album, of course. But on that, in that, um, uh, you mentioned in an interview about, you said something about there in Australia, there's these bottle openers made from kangaroo anuses. Scrotums. Scrotums. I'm sorry. Scrotums. Yeah, yeah. That's so you to conflate an anus with a scrotum, Jordan. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. All the, all the uh, anatomy majors are. Um, but my question is, I don't want to make this podcast all about kangaroo scrotum bottle openers. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but how commonplace are these? Can you just buy them at any gas station? No, they're, they're in the sort of tourist traps. So if you go to Sydney and hang out near the Harbour Bridge, there'll be shops with kangaroo claw back scratches and kangaroo scrotum bottle openers. Look, they're not ubiquitous. Uh, you don't, you don't uh, personally own any... I don't have any dead kangaroo paraphernalia in my house. Um, yeah. I it, guess it, kangaroos it, are kind of like the deer of Australia. In America, yeah. we have deer antlers yeah. everywhere and... Yeah. yeah, kangaroos like bouncy deer. Before we let you go, let's talk about um, your projects. What are you working on now? What are you working? It's been about a year since Upright came out. So are you yeah. working on any new TV projects, new theater projects? What do you have going on? A lot of this year has been about uh, making music videos and promoting this record. So I'm still, you know, ranting politically on podcasts in order to try and uh, sell my record, uh, which is an interesting well, strategy. Well, I, I feel by blessed me. that we that we got a Tim Minchin rant on our show. Yes, well, there you go. There's a few of them. Um, uh, and uh, Upright, you know, still trying to promote Upright. It's it's on it's on Sundance now in America, and it just it's so satisfying because people keep discovering it. And an Upright is something that once when people watch it, they they tend to fall hard because it's it really it has a big emotional ending, and and um, it's so amazing hearing from people in America slowly, slowly discovering it. So I'm still promoting that Upright Two is on the cards. We've got some. It's Australia suddenly has all the TV and films in the world being made in it because we don't have any virus and all the Americans are coming to film in Queensland. And um, so uh, it's quite hard to get stuff made. I've got another TV project on the boil and uh, I want to make sure my next album isn't another 20 years away. Um, and uh, I've got another musical that I've got to find time for and, you know, I'll just keep doing all my stuff. And then you have to deal with the 14-year-old you know, and I've got, I've got eight 14 year olds and my son, uh, got to get home to Perth for Christmas. The borders have just opened up and I've got to go see my mum who's not been well. So that's very exciting. 
uh, yeah, I mean, basically I'm just going to keep working until Marvel offer me some wacky character and then I'll retire. Well, if Cumberbatch can be Dr. Strange, they got to find totally. something for you. I mean, look at me. I look like a baddie superhero guy. That's would you it. play, uh, would, do you think you would make a good, uh, Marvel villain? I think so. I think I would have been a good Loki, although he's pretty great. Uh, I just really like, um, it, for those who've watched Upright, you'll know I, 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 I like jumping over tables and out of trucks and punching people. And uh, I, I'm sure that would surprise some who have listened to my work, but, uh, but, but acting action scenes is really all, all, <laughs> all I want to do. Do you do your own stunts? Do you? I did most of them in, uh, in Upright. I did my own fighting and a little bit of my own. Yeah, yeah, I mostly did. You got some combat training? Oh, nah, enough to not get hurt <laughs> until right. I do. Yeah. All right, Tim, thank you so much for joining us. Congratulations on the new album. It's, it's really thank good. Thank you. Well. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm stoked. I'm, I'm the luckiest guy. I just get to do stuff and uh, people are nice to me nearly all the time. nearly all the time nearly all the time and then sometimes they're really mean (laughs) but that's fair enough hey it's really great to meet you guys all right tim we'll talk to you later thank you cheers demi bye jordan bye Bye. yo that was interesting that was uh different than our normal music interview that was not where did this influence come from kind of 100 percent. no i actually really enjoyed that because it wasn't one of our usual like guests that was we had this was uh this was a real podcast today this is a real <laughs> this is not a little kid podcast this, this is not, is your not little a little podcast. Yeah, exactly this one wasn't for the teeny boppers this one was for the intellectual types and i was enjoying hearing you guys talk i was like yeah this is interesting. okay well, you know, I have this Capitol Hill political background a little mm-hmm. bit. I wasn't a huge like policy wonk, but I worked for a nonprofit who was in the policy uh, arena. And so, you know, it's fun to kind of bring that out a little bit, you know. Damn. Yeah. Thank you for listening to It's Real with Jordan and Demi. You can go to popdust.com for an archive of all our past shows. You can follow me on Instagram at Jordan Edward Studio. You can follow Demi on Instagram at Demi underscore Ramos. Have a safe and fun holiday season. We will be back after New Year's. See you next time.